This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. This episode is brought to you by Lola V, an award-winning hair care line founded by the fabulous Jennifer Aniston. Jen got tired of the same old struggle we all face, choosing between hair products that work and ones that are actually good for us. With Lola V, that dilemma is history. We all put our hair through the ringer. That's why it's crucial to have products that not only repair the look of the damage, but also shield your locks from future harm. Enter Lola V's bestsellers, the Glossing Detangler and the Perfecting Leave-In Conditioner. They're your hair's new best friend. For a limited time, you get 15% off your entire order at lolavie.com. Just use the code RAWBEAUTYTALKS at checkout. Lolavie is all about naturally derived plant-based goodness, no silicone, sulfates, parabens, or gluten, and of course, cruelty-free and vegan. That's 15% off your order at lolavie.com with promo code RAWBEAUTYTALKS. You can only use one promo code per order and discounts can't be combined. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Tell them I sent you over. Welcome to Raw Beauty Talks. I'm your host, Erin Trelor. Ready to peer behind the highlight reel and all those polished pictures of the world's biggest influencers and wellness experts? We're going to uncover what beauty, health, and wellness truly means in today's world. As someone who really struggled with disordered eating and negative body image, I became a health coach because I'm passionate about redefining health and wellness so that it's less about the weight on the scale and more about how we feel. Let's pull back the curtain for some raw beauty talks. Hey beauties, how the heck is everybody doing today out there? Let's just take a little moment to do a checkup from the neck it, neck up, neck up. Bleh, bleh. <laughs> Apparently I can't talk today. Oh my. This is going to be interesting. Okay, wherever you are, check up from the neck up, taking a second for yourself. I hope that you're hanging out with me over on Instagram. I'm starting this new thing where every week I'm going to do a raw talk post where I just want to start a conversation about something that I've heard in media or that I've read about or that's sort of trending in the area of body image, confidence, self-love, you know, all the stuff that we jam about over here. So I would love to hear from you over on any of the posts that I do, but those raw talk ones, I really want them to be a juicy, good conversation. This week, I'm talking about an article that I recently read in The Cut where they're describing these like masses of tweens, kids who are 10, 11, 12, who are showing up in Sephora, and that this is the new hangout place for these tweens, whatever we want to call them. I was laughing because I was like, oh, 10, 11, 12, that's kind of the age when I probably started to wish that I could wear a little bit of mascara or wear some blue eyeshadow as we did back in the 80s and early 90s. But I wasn't allowed in our house. Like my parents weren't that strict, but it just wasn't a thing. Like they were not going out buying us makeup and they certainly were not dropping us off at a store where we could just look at, try on and purchase makeup, especially expensive makeup. If we were going anywhere, it was the drugstore. So I am so curious. This article was all about these tweens who are hanging out in Sephora 
and buying drunk elephant anti-aging serums and lotions. Drunk Elephant is the name of a brand if you're not familiar with it. And the comment section of this cut post was just so it was just going off. Really, everyone had something to say about this. So I'm so curious about what your thoughts are on this. I want to know when you started wearing makeup, maybe you still don't wear makeup, which is totally cool, whether your parents were strict about this or whether there was a lot of room for creative expression. How do we feel about 10-year-olds using anti-aging products? I should remain unbiased, but... <laughs> I I feel some things about that. Yeah, let me know if you're a mom who has a 10, 11, 12-year-old. Are they hanging out at Sephora? Has anybody noticed this? What is going on out there? Please, I order my stuff online, so I'm not spending a lot of time in there, but I would like to know all the things. I will link to this post down in the show notes. Please come join the conversation. The Instagram handle is at Raw Beauty Talks. I started the Instagram page and I started this whole business as a conversation. And I really want to bring it back to that where I can hear different perspectives from y'all. So let me know. Head down there. Now, speaking of speaking, using your voice, sharing, I have a little request. I'm wondering if you've been listening to this episode for a minute. Maybe you've listened to one or two episodes, or maybe you've been here since the very start. If you could take a moment to leave a review, I would be so grateful. You can do it on Spotify or on Apple. I will leave some links again down in the show notes to make it super easy for you. You can even click in there right now and leave a little review. Let me know what episodes you're loving. Let me know if there's anything that I can switch up or change up or if there are any guests that you would love to see. The more reviews we have, the more the podcast starts showing up at the top of people's search functions. And so it just really helps us continue to build our community of other beautiful women who are working on wellness, health, beauty, confidence, self-love, all of the things. All right, let's dive into today's episode. You may know my guest from her time on The Bachelor, but beyond the title of reality TV star, Sarah Heron is a storyteller. She's an IVF warrior. She is an outdoor adventurer and an advocate for those with disabilities. Sarah was born with one arm, and she's the founder of a nonprofit called She Lift that aims to help young women with disabilities discover self-esteem in the outdoors. She has incredibly vulnerably and so candidly shared her three-year IVF journey on social media. And I mean, she just shows up in the most incredible way. She shared about her experience with the unexpected loss of her son at only 24 weeks. And today we're celebrating that she is currently pregnant with rainbow IVF twins. In this episode, we talk about how Sarah's disability challenged her body image and in moments continues to do so, while simultaneously being one of her greatest superpowers. We talk extensively about her IVF journey and her fertility journey. She shares her story, her advice for others who are on the path of growing their family, and how this has changed how she shows up in the world. I hope you love this conversation as much as I did. And for any of you who are 
on that journey of growing your family, I want you to know that I see you and my heart is with you and I'm holding space for you over here. I know how challenging this can be in so many different layers. And often when you're on that fertility journey, whether you're trying or just thinking about it or pregnant, it can really impact the relationship that you have with your body. So just simply know that you are not alone if you're feeling all of the feels. And Sarah and I are here today to support you in whatever way we can. All right, Sarah, thank you for joining me on the show. Yeah, of course. And I mean, like the feeling is mutual. I've been following you forever and I just love what you're doing in social media. And so, I mean, I think I've been following you for like four or five years now. So it is truly, yeah, it's an honor to be here and to finally meet you and have some of these conversations. Well, thank you. I didn't even know that you were following along, but that's so lovely to hear. Obviously, Mm -hmm. this podcast is a conversation about beauty and confidence and self-love and body image. And so I'd love to just start off there and hear a little bit about what your experience has been with all of that. I think it's taken a lot of work, (laughs) a lot of therapy. Growing up as a young woman with a disability, and I would say really it started more in like middle school, high school with a disability is when I really started to become aware of my body image and how I fit in with my peers and how boys looked at me and how girls looked at me. And I really did begin to struggle with that in high school of just like, do people like me? Do they not like me? Maybe I need to change myself to fit in. And that kind of just only slowly snowballed and continued to grow into my early 20s. I moved to LA, you know, crazy image driven city. And I was working in advertising and really started to struggle with body image was super, super insecure when it came to dating. Like I wanted to be online and have dating profiles. Back then it was like match.com and um, this is pre-Tinder or Bumble days, but I wanted to try online dating because I thought maybe that would help. But then I was scared to put images of my arm because I thought people would just like immediately discount me or not want to meet me. And so I think a lot of that insecurity translated into disordered eating and restrictive eating and body image issues. And I've definitely struggled with it, you know, off and on since early, you know, adolescence until about like my early 30s, I decided it was like not workable for me anymore. It wasn't going to be sustainable, especially as I was in a long-term committed relationship. It wasn't something that I could hide anymore. And so I forced myself to kind of reckon with that. And I started going to therapy and I've been working on body image, mental health, eating recovery for about six years now. And I'm finally in a really good place. I wouldn't say it ever really goes away, unfortunately, because of like the society we live in. I grew up diet culture driven, just like everyone in millennials. And so it's kind of like ingrained in us forever, but we can do um, a lot of the work to start undoing uh, um, some of that wiring. And so I feel like I'm in a good place today, but like I said, it's taken Mm. a lot of work and it's hard to stop it from creeping in from time to time. Wow. I had no idea that you 
had experienced any of that. So thank you so much for sharing. Yeah. For those uh, who are listening right now who maybe don't know you, which I feel mm-hmm. like you have such a beautiful online presence, you have to go follow her on social. I'll make sure all of her handles and site and everything are down below. But can you share what your disability is? Yeah. So I was born with a congenital birth defect called amniotic band syndrome, which means um, I was born without my left arm from the elbow down. And it was a completely unexpected disability. Back in the 80s, it was kind of like you had your couple of ultrasounds, everything looked good, 10 fingers, 10 toes pretty early on. And then along in development, what happens is like the amniotic bands that are in the sac. They're like fibrous tissues that are in the sac. They can sometimes adhere themselves to baby's limbs and cause like a in utero amputation. So I was born without my arm. I've never known any different. It wasn't an accident. A lot of people have asked me if it was like a shark attack or an accident. And that was also tough figuring out as a kid, like what's my identity? Everyone thinks I'm an accident or something happened to me. So that was another added layer. But no, I was just born without my arm. And physically, it it actually hasn't really stopped me from much. I'm super involved in outdoor recreation. And I've always loved pushing my physical limits to see what I'm capable of. But mentally, I would say having one arm was more of a struggle than physically. When I think about you and how you show up, and obviously we don't know each other personally, but the arm piece just seems like it's so in the background at this point. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you arrived in the limo, she was on The Bachelor, for those <laughs> of you who don't know. Obviously, it was something that was different than what you were seeing from a lot of the other girls. And it became a big part of your identity on that show, right? It was yeah. like talked about so much. But now, do you feel like it's a big part of your identity or having been born like that? Is it just like this is who you are? It's not a straightforward answer. I do feel like it's part of my identity in the sense that everything I do pretty much all day is thought of from a different perspective than someone with two hands. But at the same time, like anyone who's known me my whole life, all my best friends are like, like I forget. I don't even remember that you have one hand sometimes. And Dylan, my husband, says the same thing. And and so it's kind of like not a straight answer. It's like Yes, it does feel very much a part of me. I think if I had two hands and I think if I went and got a prosthetic arm, it wouldn't be me. Like I am Sarah who has adapted and overcome. But at the same time, it's very much not me. And I'm like capable of everything that I've ever wanted to do with two hands. So I don't know. It's like I said, it's not a straight answer. It's a little bit of both. What would you say to somebody who also has a disability or who is struggling with their own body image? What has helped you navigate all of this and get to the place that you are now? A huge component is finding community because growing up, I was in a school, a very um, small town mountain school where we didn't have other kids with disabilities. It was even predominantly a white school. You know, we don't see a lot of differences where I grew up in the mountains. And so I think 
that can really contribute to just feeling isolation and otheredness. And so if you can put yourself, immerse yourself in community with like people that look like you, people that think like you and challenge themselves, it can build your confidence. So whether that's like getting involved in a camp or even just an online community can do tremendous wonders for your confidence and your sense of belonging. You are the founder of an incredible nonprofit called She Lift that aimed to help young women with disabilities discover self-esteem in the outdoors. So I love that this is one of your biggest tips is finding community. And then you literally went out there and created space and supported women in finding community. Can you tell me a little bit about She Lift? She Lift was a project as a result of The Bachelor. I had gone on season 17, Sean Lowe's season, and came off and had like this huge influx of messages from young girls and moms writing me, because this is before social media, like writing me letters being like, this is the first time I've seen someone that looks like me on a dating show or even just looks like me on TV. I was kind of overwhelmed, like, whoa, I had no idea there was this many young women out there. But like I was 25 and I wasn't really emotionally equipped to process that. And so I kind of just put it to the side. A couple years later, I went on Bachelor in Paradise. Again, had so many people reach out and they're like, you're my favorite. I feel like I can see myself in you because I've had these differences or I've had insecurities with dating. And then I started to kind of be like, okay, there's this huge population of young women who need community. They need resources to like foster and build confidence. And so I was invited to come back on Bachelor in Paradise season three. And at that point, I was like, okay, if I do it, if I take time off work to go be on this show again, I am going to use that to start something. Like I want to launch something. And I didn't know really what it was at the time, but I I just needed something in place to fundraise for. So I was like, I really love skiing. My dream would be to take girls with disabilities to Colorado and teach them how to ski. And so that was kind of the initial concept of SheLift. And I put together a fundraising strategy and I came off Bachelor in Paradise and we started raising money and I just used that platform to reach everyone while I had a captive audience. (laughs) And since then, I mean, it's been so great. Women have come together and it's more than just the recreation. It's more than skiing. It's more than hiking. It's in the small moments at the house where the girls are putting on makeup or doing their hair and teaching each other how to curl their hair with one hand. It's those kind of moments that I think really introduce one another to like connection and possibility and confidence. Oh, I have full body goosebumps. It's so beautiful and so powerful and so cool. And I love that you took something that you're passionate about and then created these community events and moments for people. I I think it's so powerful when we are together with others and realize that we're not alone. Like there's so much healing in that. So I'd love to chat about something that you've been going through for the last several years that impacts so many women today. I have many friends who are on their fertility journeys. And you have been just so open and vulnerable and beautiful at sharing your own journey. Can you talk to us a little bit about what your IVF 
process has been like and what that experience has been like for you. Yeah, thank you. My husband and I have been going through fertility treatments for a little over over three years or like right around three years now. We've been doing IVF. I was diagnosed with diminished ovarian reserve at the age of 34, which is young to be told that you basically don't have any eggs left. And so we immediately started IVF. Upon doing so, we found out we were both carriers for a genetic disease. And so that complicated things because it was like we were already struggling to create embryos together. And then once we were able to actually create embryos, we would lose them to genetic disease. So it's been very tough for us to create embryos. We've been through four egg retrievals, and I've been through five embryo transfers. I was successful with my second embryo transfer a year ago and became pregnant with our son, Oliver, and unfortunately, unexpectedly lost him at my 24 and a half week mark. Um, and that was completely devastating, needless to say. And so that was exactly a year ago. So we've spent the last year recovering, trying to put the pieces back together. I had a lot of complications after losing him. I had like retained products of conception for a long time and had to have surgery and it was horrible. We did another egg retrieval, got a few more embryos, and we just recently transferred our last two embryos They're considered mosaic embryos for those listening. You'll know what that means, who know, but it's kind of a complicated thing. And they stuck. So I am currently newly pregnant (laughs) with twins and it is crazy and it's just a whirlwind and full of mixed emotions, especially at this kind of like one year anniversary of of losing our son. It's wild to think about everything that you've been through and all the emotion that you've held space for. And I know not from personal experience, but from talking to friends who are going through this, that it is incredibly physically, emotionally, spiritually exhausting. Yeah. Trying to get pregnant, going through IVF, the highs and lows of every appointment, of every period, of every even the pregnancy, from what I understand, it's like hard to get excited about it fully. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So where are you right now? Congratulations on these little twins that are there. How do you feel? It's different. I think, one, I was shocked because I was so kind of at the end of my rope and Dylan, God bless him, will keep going for as long as I wanted to. But we did have a talk. You know, I was done. I'm not going to lie. I was done in, I think, like August or something. Was I had a failed embryo transfer, and I was kind of just done. I was like, I don't think I really have it in me anymore. I'm ready to break up with IVF. It's been three years. I, we've dedicated our entire lives to this. We don't travel anymore. We don't have fun anymore. Our lives revolve around being at the doctor's office and my cycle and testing and I'm just done. And he was like, well, I want to try one more time. So like, can you give me one more try? (laughs) And I was really shocked to hear him say that. I was like, kind of like, wow, okay. 
maybe you're the coach I need to get me through like the last quarter of a mile, you know? And so I was like, okay, I can do it one more time. Let's try it one more time. And we were like, let's just put two embryos in because I don't really want to keep going through this over and over. So we put two in and I was shocked that they both stuck. And so now I think I've just kind of been in this phase of like pregnancy after loss is so different. You don't have like the same honeymoon phase. I I hate to say it, but it's like it just changes you. You have sensitivities that you didn't have before. I feel so much more sensitive to other women who are going through, you know, infertility or pregnancy loss. And so it's like I'm more aware of the way other people are observing and watching. I'm just like more cautious. I feel like everything they say, you're like cautiously optimistic. So I'm like shocked and grateful and so glad that Dylan pushed me to try again because now we're here. Um, and I feel like it's given me that last boost that I needed. But yeah, it's it's so tough. And you just take it one day at a time, truly. I love what you mentioned about this new found consciousness or sensitivity mm-hmm. because like when you were on The Bachelor and all these people were reaching out to you, you have a lot of people following along on this journey that you're on and a lot of people sharing their stories and their heartbreak and their ups and downs along the way. Like when I was scrolling through the comments of recent posts, people are just, they're rooting for you. They're opening up. They're like, there's just so much being handed to you Yeah, that it would raise your levels of empathy as to what a pregnancy announcement could feel like for other people who are trying. Yeah. I mean, after losing Oliver, I'm embarrassed to say, but how could I have known better? When I was pregnant for the first time, I didn't know any better, you know, but after losing Oliver, I was like, oh my gosh, like I never realized how much it hurt me to see other people's pregnancy announcements, how much it hurt even just to be like inundated with pregnancy on social media. I think honestly, there's a toxic level of pregnancy like on social media. It's crazy. And to undo that and un like change my algorithm so I wasn't getting pregnancy in my face every time I opened Instagram took a serious effort. And so I think it's just changed, like I said, my sensitivities to other people's experiences. We don't – but we don't know. In our first pregnancy, we don't know. We're just happy and we want to share it all with the world. And it just changes after mm. loss. So consciousness is definitely a great way to say that. Do you think other – women should be aware of how they're putting it out on social media? Yes and no. I think like you're entitled to be excited about your pregnancy. You're entitled to have a pregnancy announcement and and celebrate and like drop into your pregnancy, like enjoy it, soak it up, right? It's just complicated because so many people aren't aware of how it impacts other people. So I wouldn't say that women should like filter themselves or downplay their pregnancy to protect other people, but maybe just have like a greater awareness for there are people who are hurting or this content might hurt. I hate to say it, but like my favorite pregnancy announcements are always the ones from women who are like, they call out 
attention to the women who are struggling to get pregnant and like say, I know this might be difficult to see or to the women who are in the trenches, like I see you, I hear you and your day will come. And like acknowledgement of the people who are struggling, I think always goes, is like the best way to, to go over it. When you haven't gone through IVF, you don't fully understand what that process is like. And obviously, there are a lot of different steps and the science behind it is complicated. But would you mind opening the window a little bit so that people can understand what that experience is like if they haven't been through it themselves? Yeah. I mean, I think for one – there's still a ton of shame and stigma around infertility diagnoses. And so when you receive a diagnosis that you have diminished ovarian reserve or male factor or even just unexplained infertility, there's still just a lot of shame that we have to kind of undo around that. And so the usually like the first wave of emotion is you just feel like something's wrong with you, that you're broken. And then you're kind of put into this like category of seeing a doctor for a topic that's kind of hush-hush or secretive. And that can feel really isolating. You know, they say one in eight couples experience infertility, but most people aren't talking about it. So you can't really look at your group of friends and be like, oh, well, Joan and Jim have infertility. At least we have them. It's like it's so kept secret that you just feel like you're completely alone. And it's tough because your world does orient around going to doctor's appointments and your cycle and you have to like be at the doctors on specific days of your cycle so you really can't travel, you can't like make plans, you're on a lot of medications. It feels like you're being poked and prodded. But I will say this, infertility is known as the worst club with the best members. And so going back to what we were talking about at the beginning of finding community, I have met some of the best women, the most resilient, compassionate, empathetic friends of my whole life through this terrible club. And I would just say if you are someone who is newly experiencing infertility or if you've been going through this for years and you feel isolated, the very best thing you can do for yourself is to join a community, join a support group, get yourself immersed with other women who are going through it because they will know exactly what you're experiencing. It's like we can finish each other's sentences when we're going through something with women in infertility. So you know, it sounds really hard and it sounds difficult and it it is and it is that's why we're called IVF warriors, but they are truly some of the strongest women I've ever met in my life. I don't know where I would be without them. I love that. And it it feels so resonant for anyone who is in a warrior stage of life, whether that's with anxiety or cancer or you know, any of these difficult life moments that we go through, so often we can feel very alone and isolated. And so finding community seems to be a common thread in this episode already. And I do think it's so, so, so important as well. Yeah. Community. I mean, like, it's weird because I consider myself a pretty introverted person, but I have a lot of communities and I find life 
through them. And, you know, there's, there's a group for everything, I swear. So just, you just have to find your people. What are the most supportive things that you can do as a friend for somebody who is on their IVF journey? Great question. If you have a friend who's experiencing any type of infertility, the best thing you can do is ask her how she wants to be supported. Don't try and figure it out. You don't have to try and pretend. You don't have to know all of the answers. Ask her, do you want me to check in? Is it helpful if I check in or is it helpful if I don't check in? And then also do a little bit of your own education so that she doesn't have to like labor herself educating you on what she's going through. So if she says, we found out I have diminished ovarian reserve or I have endometriosis or we have male factor, just Google it. You can find so much information. Educate yourself a little bit about what she's going through. And then, like I said, ask, how can I best support you? Do you want advice or do you want me to listen? That's typically all we want. We just want to feel supported and we just want someone to show up. And are there, on the flip side, any things that people should not do or not say that can be triggering or activating? There's a lot. (laughs) There's a lot. (laughs) But like the point is not to shame anyone because you have to remember, and I have to remind myself all the time, most people are coming with good intentions, right? Like most people, when they offer advice or they say, everything happens for a reason, whatever, it's laced in good intention. But it's typically because like they feel uncomfortable by the situation. Like they're saddened by the situation you're going through and they're trying to alleviate discomfort. So I try to just always remember to have a little bit of empathy for people when like advice is delivered a little tactless. But I would say the biggest thing not to do is convince someone with infertility that like you know, you'll get through this. Everything happens for a reason. Try to refrain from like platitudes or just deflecting their discomfort because the reality is like it might not work for everyone. You might Mm -hmm. go through years and years of IVF and it might not work. So it's better to just sit in the realness with your friend rather than try and like divert out of the discomfort right away. I think one of the reasons that we are where we are is because of people like you who are sharing mm-hmm. and talking and educating. There's weight there. There is responsibility and expectation and a lot of energy that you're holding. So yeah. thank you for the way that you show up so authentically and just in a really incredible way. How do you take care of yourself when you've got 3,000 people (laughs) commenting on your posts with their stories and their advice and their feedback? Wow. I mean, it's such a good question because a lot of people do ask me like, how do you hold space for everyone else kind of like divulging their trauma or their loss or their questions on you? And I don't know, truthfully. I mean, I'm in therapy, but I love talking to women. I love relating and sharing our stories and our experiences. And maybe it is because I go to therapy and so I'm able to kind of process my own stuff and then have space for other people. But, you know, I run a support group also for women experiencing infertility and like that hour every week that I touch base with those women, it just like refuels me. So I think kind of just going back to what you said, when you find your people and you're going through this very, very unique life experience together, 
you don't get sick of talking about it um, and you just find yourself being able to expand and have capacity for people and their experiences. Where can people find out more about the support group? And uh, is it open to people? Yeah. <laughs> or like how many people do you have in the support group that you do? Okay. So the way it works is I host – I facilitate like small sessions. So we do – anywhere between five and seven weeks. We meet as a small intimate group of about 10 to 15 women just to keep things intimate and personal. And then beyond that, there's like a membership option where all the alumni come together and we have a bi-monthly support group. So it's kind of twofold. You can learn about it on my website. Just go to sarahheron.com. And then there's a tab that says the infertile circle. So just click on that and it'll give you all the information. And then we have like a text group. So basically I feel like that's the most valuable piece of the whole support group is that like when you're going through something, it's like having a best friend on speed dial to talk about your, your struggles. So it's like your doctor wants to change your medication and you don't know if it's a good idea, you can text the support group and be like, what do you guys think? Have, has anyone tried this medication? And it's really great. So um, sarahheron.com. Okay. I will be for sure linking to that down below. Thank you. And that is absolutely incredible. It was one of my questions was, are there resources? Like where would you point people who need some support? But that sounds perfect. Yeah. Start with mine. And then if that's if that, if that's not enough, there's so many resources. I swear there's a Facebook group for everything. I'm in half of them. So you'll see me. And then there's, I mean, there's great resources out there. Awesome. Amazing. Let's do a little rapid fire okay. to wrap things up and oh, pull things up a little bit lighter. Okay. So, okay, we'll start with your favorite book. My favorite book. Okay, I would say Untamed by Glennon Doyle. I just go back to it all the time, and I learn so much from her, and I always share excerpts from her book, so I would say Untamed. Incredible. I love that book. It is on my bookshelf and one of my top recommendations too. Something that brings you joy. My dog, Rio, brings me so much joy. If you had a full day to just like indulge in self-care, what would you do? Uh, full day of self-care. We have this kind of like spiritual yoga center in the town where I live. It has a spa. They have, like I said, yoga. I would just like go spend the whole day there and just like drop into spirituality is, is kind of my MO. Oh, it sounds heavenly. Yeah. What is your greatest virtue and what is your greatest vice? Oh, gosh. Greatest virtue. I think my greatest virtue is my ability to listen and actually hear other people, like actually hear them. And my greatest vice or my worst vice is my addiction to reality television. <laughs> <laughs> what show are you watching? And maybe the recap podcasts that recap the reality TV shows. But um, yeah, I just finished Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. It's my favorite. Now I'm just kind of like doing 90 Day Fiance until I can find my next binge. <laughs> I love that so much. If you could relive any age, what age would you relive? Oh, I really, really – I mean, they, they've all been great since like late 20s, but I loved like 28 was really great. I feel like that was the year I kind of like stepped into my knowing. I was like stepping into some self-confidence, started my nonprofit, met my now husband. Like 
that was a really great year. But the 30s have been excellent and I wouldn't I wouldn't change any of them. How did you meet your husband? So actually I hired him to be a photographer <laughs> for my nonprofit. <laughs> no way. Yeah, and he so he came and he was doing videography and photography and he was just like so patient and kind with the young girls and like helping them put ski boots on and I just like my heart melted and I was like, "Oh my gosh, I really have a crush on this guy." And we spent time together and realized how much we had in common, you know, with like creativity and lifestyle and we started dating literally later that week and we've been inseparable ever since. Wow. Immediate yes. Yeah. And again, The Bachelor led you in some way, shape or form, mm -hmm. albeit not maybe what you were initially expecting, mm -hmm. to your husband. Totally. And you know what's funny? He's never watched the show, doesn't know anything about it. It's like – Love him for that. Yeah. I love yeah. him for that. And I love you for the fact that you watch all of the shows. Yeah. <laughs> Still. And so good. So yeah. good. Uh, biggest insecurity? I would say this is – tough. I would say, honestly, probably my biggest insecurity is still my arm, even after everything, just because it's still a constant that comes into my mind every day of like, is that little kid staring at my arm? Is that like my coat sleeve looks different on my arm than hers does? I don't know. It's just like it's still in my head every single day. Mm. So that's the real real of that. That's okay. You're allowed to have insecurities. I think we all do, right? Yeah. And sometimes when we can meet those insecurities with love and compassion, like, of course, I'm human. And of course, sometimes this stirs things up. Sometimes that's the first step in just softening that noise, you know? Yeah, exactly. We can love you just as you are. A product that you can't live without. I'm not really like attached to products um, or things too much. Um Probably just chapstick in general. No specific brand. Love that. Always on my lip chap. <laughs> Keeping the lips moisturized. Yeah. So this podcast is called Raw Beauty Talks. What does raw beauty mean to you? I think raw beauty to me is just self-explanatory, but it's just like the authenticity. It's just, like I said earlier, stepping into your, your own and being authentic. I think just – 100% who you are, it doesn't mean – kind of like we just said, it doesn't mean you have to love 100% of who you are, but but just being 100% of who you are. And I think we're going to all kind of come and go out of loving or feeling discomfort of different parts of us at different stages of life and learning to have a little bit of self-compassion around those changes is is what's real. Beautiful. I have learned in over 200 plus conversations on the podcast and another 500 conversations that I had when it was a blog and interview series that showing up authentically is one of the most brave things that a human can do. And it's really hard. And a lot of people are still trying to figure out how to find their voice and how to use that and how to show up in a way that feels really free. Yeah. And I just want to say that you are truly one of the most authentic people that I have ever spoken to that is showing up on social media. That Thank doesn't you. mean that you have to love every part of yourself, as you said before. But in doing so, you are changing the world. You are creating community for 
so many people and not just the women that you're in contact with, but their families and their friends and their sisters and their partners. And it doesn't freaking matter what anyone looks like. You can create so much change in the world and you are doing that. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And thank you for being here today. Thanks, Erin. Yeah, what a great conversation. I hope it helps someone. And just my biggest thing is like, I just want everyone to know that you're not alone, right? Like, look at me now. I've talked about feeling othered because of a disability and othered because of infertility. And I have found some of the best communities through both of those differences. And so whatever you're going through, if you're listening, watching, and um, feel like you're alone, I assure you, you are not. Amazing. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks, Erin. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this week's episode. Please take a moment to rate, review, or follow on your favorite podcast app and share this episode with someone that you think could benefit. Join the Raw Beauty Talks community at Raw Beauty Talks. And remember, it's your story, your body, your mind, and your journey. So think about what resonates with you and leave the rest behind. I'll see you next week.